Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where each and every happy warrior is welcome. And I remind you of the beautiful English poet's poem. William Wordsworth wrote a poem about the happy warrior, which is from where I, um, I got the idea. And uh, Wordsworth wrote, Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who, when brought finds comfort in himself and in his cause, and while the mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause. This is the happy warrior, this is he, that every man in arms should wish to be. Um, It's a little bit like another lovely poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley, and the closing lines of that I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Isn't that beautiful? We're not victims. We're not passive. We're not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. No, we are happy warriors. And it is indeed my honor to serve you all. We're all happy warriors, whether man or woman. Because to live productively, you have no option, do you? You have to fight every day against the force of entropy, if if nothing else. You fight to maintain your possessions. You fight to build and maintain your family and your money, your body and your business, profession or career. You see, God created a world in which chaos and disorder rule. I refer you to one of the most important verses, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Everything was tohu bohu, and that actually is a word that is found in the English dictionary, although what I just read was the Hebrew word, meaning chaos and confusion. Yeah, life is a fight, and that is a good thing. To stop fighting and to stop seeking and to stop striving and trying to accomplish (laughs) Well, that's to die. And I call you not just warriors, but happy warriors. Because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, well, that's one thing. But to do all of that with a debonair smile on your lips and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul. Well, that means that you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, your fitness, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many destructive and evil social pathologies that it generates. 
And pretty much wherever you live, you can just look around and see how very true that is. Now, I dare say that some of you are a little bit alarmed. After all, starting the podcast not with one piece of poetry, but two, not just The Happy Warrior of William Wordsworth, but Invictus of William Ernest Henley. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. You are probably thinking to yourself that um, this show is going to be going a, a little highbrow and we're going to be talking about poetry. So I thought to immediately put your minds at ease, I'm going to talk about the dinner that Mrs. Lappin and I enjoyed last night. You see, we decided that we would like to have a dinner of fish. And so I, please note that, not Mrs. Lappin, but I, your humble rabbi, was additionally humbled yesterday evening by a trip to the fishmonger, where I was fortunate enough to be able to purchase a pound and a half of cod. That's right, cod. Cod, have you heard of Cape Cod in Massachusetts, in the United States? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's named after a fish called the cod. And this, if you ever buy fish and chips in England, and when I was a student in the United Kingdom, I most certainly ate fish and chips. And by the way, for it to be proper English fish and chips from that vintage, it needs to be wrapped up in a newspaper, um, just to, to clarify. And uh, the fish was always cod, right? Potato, fried potato fries and cod. As a matter of fact, cod has served as one of the most staple foods of all of Europe for a good few hundred years from before Columbus discovered America in 1492. Well before that, Europeans were eating cod. There are a few reasons for it. I mean, first of all, the fish uh, at its best, you know, grows to about six foot and can weigh about 200 pounds. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a big fish. That would be a big example. Um, they're not easily found at that size anymore. But um, the, the flesh of the fish is delicious. It is not very bony. And um, uh, it's not a very deep water fish. Um, 200 to 600 feet is, is where they like to hang out. And um, it's almost as if the good Lord created the cod specifically to feed people. I guess he did, uh, because the cod makes very little attempt to escape. If one uh, gets him on the hook, well, he pretty much stays there. He gives up the ghost there and then. And this remarkable fish, the cod, served as one of the main sources of protein in the diet of Europeans. Um, I mean, all from Iceland down to France at the Mediterranean, uh, 
for hundreds and hundreds of years. As a matter of fact, um, they used to send out fleets fishing for cod, and they used to range through the North Sea and westwards into the Atlantic, all the way up to Iceland. They'd bring it back. Meanwhile, the absolute lords of the cod, the wizards of the cod, were the Basque people. The Basque people are a, a group of people living in an, a sort of autonomous area in northwest Spain and also southwest France, bordering on the Bay of Biscay. And um, there have been political problems over the years because they do not consider themselves Spanish and they do, they do not want to be governed by Spain. And uh, so at the moment, they've got a, a sort of tenuous peace worked out. But they're very ancient people. Um, they're also very industrious and very effective. They're the, the gross domestic product um, in uh, at least the... Uh, uh, the, the well, yeah, the gross domestic product uh, averaged out on a per person basis for the Basque region of France, it's about twenty to thirty percent higher than Spain as a whole and the whole of the European Community. What's more, they have their own language, and and here's the the fascinating thing: it's quite mysterious. I I don't fully understand it myself. But uh, the language they speak is not, it, it sounds nothing like Spanish. Uh, it doesn't appear to be related to Spanish. In fact, it's not even an Indo-European language like, you know, uh, Spanish, Italian, French. So exactly how that language came into being um, is is somewhat unknown and, and certainly unsure. Uh, but that they are an ancient people um, is for sure. And they uh, used to be quite intrepid sailors, and they used to hunt whales. And because there was no refrigeration, uh, dried fish, dried meat, salted, all of these were the way in which people were able to store food. And um, the rest of, of Europe, you know, as I said, is going to fish for cod, because it's it's bountiful and it's it's very very nourishing and it's tasty. Uh, by the way, I can tell you um, the 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 way I prepared it. Yes, you heard it right. Um, I know as much about cooking as a circus clown knows about neurosurgery, but I cooked the cod. Um, you know, you follow a recipe, right? I just take instructions in a bay. <laughs> That's all I did. But um, uh, it was magnificent, absolute. It's a wonderful fish. And sure enough, uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, early Middle Ages and onwards that we know of, um, salted cod was an absolute staple. It was traded, it was shipped around and traded for other things. It was a hugely valuable commodity. And um, the Basques, somehow or another, uh, were dominating the the cod market. They their ships would leave in the spring, come back six months later in the fall, and not only were they loaded with cod, but they were loaded with cod already salted and dried. So they must have had some place where they found the cod and landed, which they could land, and you know set up 
drying stations uh, because it was so much more economical to sail back dried cod than the fish themselves because you're not you're not dragging back all the the part that's going to be wasted although um, in 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 Europe and in America the waste parts of cod that were not converted into food became hugely important fertilizers for agriculture, played a big, big role in the developing of the New England colonies and their agricultural abilities because the the natural soil there wasn't that great. But with the addition of the fertilizer made from leftover cod, it was great. But anyway, the Basque people... um, their ships were loaded. You know, they were not carrying excess water or fish tails or anything. They were they were just carrying dried, salted cod ready for the market. And uh, they dominated. Nobody knew where they got it from. And the Basques surely weren't telling anybody. So um, they became the masters and cod became traded through something that was called the Hanseatic League a federation of a about a dozen towns and cities around the North Sea and the Baltic um, that, uh, that had trade agreements with one another. And not surprisingly, Hanseatic League cities became very wealthy and cod was a part of what they traded. And as I said, cod really, to me, uh, from what I knew of cod, always seemed to be part of God's plan for nourishing human beings, uh, you know, just on the base, tasty, wonderful, beautiful, flaky meat, um, and uh, and also easy to catch and sizable, just fantastic. Um, fish, by the way, are created on not the sixth day of creation, when all the animals and the beasts of the field and human beings are created, going back to Genesis. Uh, fish are created on the fifth day of creation. And in fact, they are um, the oddly enough unique in that they are given a blessing of being fruitful and multiply during that fifth day of creation. What's that all about? And um, the answer is something that I, I speak about in one of the most exciting things I've created in in the last ten years. Uh, it's called scrolling through scripture. And it's an online program. Now, scrolling through Scripture 1 actually takes us through the first 34 verses of Genesis. Why the first 34 when the first chapter has 31 verses? Why don't I do it by chapter? And I explain how chapters came into being and why it is that the natural conclusion of the first account of creation in the Bible is not chapter 1, verse 31. It's chapter 2, verse 3. And uh, there is something remarkable that characterizes all the verses in this section, including the first three verses of chapter 2, one of the ways we know that it belongs to the account of creation found in chapter 1. And... um, by the way, this this scrolling through scripture, and it's it's about ten hours of instruction, and um, it's really really um, exciting. It's it's all the foundation 
of what you need to know before starting a, uh, a study to understand God's message to mankind. All the foundational principles of the Bible are found in those first 34 verses, and I lay them out in great detail specifically for non-Hebrew speakers. But what I do is I give you access to the information that is derived from the, 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 the data embedded in the Hebrew, and, um, and it's accessible and, and wonderfully illustrative, very important for everything else you're going to go on to study, whether you're going to do Psalms or Proverbs, whether you're going to do the book of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, or you're going to do Deuteronomy and Exodus, whatever it is, the first 34 verses are critical. And uh, you can get that very painlessly and very enjoyably from scrolling through Scripture. So go and look at it, read about it. You can even take a look at uh, a free um, initial lesson just to get a flavor of what it is, how I teach. And, uh, and here's the best thing of all. Right now, there is an unprecedented sale. We've, we've never had an opportunity to do a sale like this, but you need to write down the coupon code needed to get a fantastic reduction in price. So I'm going to tell you the coupon code. It is STS, meaning scrolling through scriptures, STS, the number one, STS one, and then FEB for February 2023. So it's STS one, Feb 2023. Scrolling through scripture, right? S-T-S, the number one, S-T-S-1, then the three letters F-E-B for February, and then 2023 for the year. And uh, using that, so just go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, search for scrolling through scripture, and you'll have an opportunity to listen to the to a pro- to part of the program, and you'll have an opportunity to order it and um, get it immediately using that particular coupon code. So uh, make a note, would you, of STS1, Feb 2023, and uh, you can't go wrong. So yes, fish are very, very interesting. Now, uh, am I telling you all of this for no other reason than to make your mouth water and to make you envious of the dinner that Mrs. Lappin and I enjoyed last night? No, not at all. Um, Cod really played a huge role in the development of uh, the colonies, but that's jumping ahead a little bit. Let me go earlier back to the uh, 13 and 1400s. Everybody's wondering, you know, meanwhile, cod is feeding Europe, but it's not that easy to catch only because, um, th- you know, they're, 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 they're fishing in the North Sea and, uh, and the waters around Iceland, and then they're bringing it back uh, in its fish form, so they've got to get back quickly, and it's, it's got to be... Uh, prepared and dried and salted. So it's not easy, but the Basque people there on the shores of the Bay of Biscay, they are producing salted cod and trading it and growing rich, uh, providing it for the rest of Europe. Nobody can figure out. Everybody wants the big secret of where the Basques are getting it from. 
And um, it wasn't until 1492 that Columbus finds what he believed were islands that lay off Asia, but it turned out to be North America. And um, they found not only North America, but the people who came in the footsteps of Columbus found, in addition to North America, they found cod, lots and lots of cod and vast stretches of shoreline uh, where they could hang it up to dry and they could salt it. And they found something else. This was really interesting. Um, so, so there they are in the footsteps of Columbus. And uh, there's a guy called Jacques Cartier, just like the jeweler. Uh, Jacques Cartier first visited the mouth of the Great St. Lawrence River in 1534. So, you know, about uh, 42 years or so after Columbus. And he claimed that land for France, which is why to this day they speak French in Quebec. And he wrote in his diaries that he, he, he counted more than 1,000 fishing boats that were all Basque fishing boats, catching cod like crazy and taking it to shore where they were drying it out. And so the secret was out. From all the way from Newfoundland, all the way down to Massachusetts in North America on the Atlantic coast, there's a series of shallow banks. Um, it's like <coughs> underwater sandbanks. Um, they don't come up to the surface, but they're much shallower than the water around them. And uh, this is a huge area. And uh, that provided exactly the shallow water that codfish like being in. And what is more, don't forget, you've got the Gulf Stream flowing up from the south, and you've got the Labrador Current flowing down from the Arctic. And guess where they meet? Over these banks. Have you heard of the Grand Banks? These are these shallow underwater areas or running parallel to the coast of North America all the way down from Canada to Massachusetts. And um, as the two ocean currents, the Labrador and the Gulf Stream meet over these uh, shoal waters, uh, they stir up huge amounts of, of nutrient, um, little fish, uh, plankton, everything. And the result is that that area just became, you know, the ideal place for cod, and they proliferated, and that became the best cod fishery in the whole world. Well, now that the Basque secret was out, there was a cod rush, not a gold rush, a cod rush, and um, uh, fishing boats from all over Europe came pouring into that area into off North America and um, at by the 15 by the middle of the 1500s fifth say 1550 listen to this figure 60 percent of all the fish being eaten in Europe was cod mostly caught of North America isn't that something so from the middle 16th century cod, 
from these banks of Massachusetts and Newfoundland were feeding Europe, providing 60% of the fish that Europe was eating. It's incredible when you think about it. Not a surprise, by the way, that if you ever visit the Massachusetts State House in Boston, uh, you will see there a really nice wooden sculpture. You can find pictures of it online. There's a wooden sculpture of a big cod right there on the wall of the Massachusetts State House in Boston. And, um, and because that's because they knew how important this amazing fish was to the, uh, the life of the colonies of North America. Um, it's even spoken about, by the way, a book I've, I've often mentioned is the book Wealth of Nations written by Adam Smith in 1776. It was published. And uh, it's a wonderful text on economics. It lays out the, the principles of specialization and competition. And that brings us to the real part of the story of why I am telling you about the cod. Now, I'm, yes, it was delicious. I made a really terrific uh, cod. I found a lovely recipe. Um, I breaded the cod and, um, and then um, pan seared. Some, somewhere between frying it and pan searing it is what I did. And I, um, uh, here's, I mean, I can tell you, Mrs. Lappin, laughed at me. I'm not going to go to as far as to say she burst out laughing hilariously, mocking me. I'm not going to go as far as that. But she definitely chuckled when uh, I brought out a thermometer to measure the temperature inside the fish. I was determined to get it right. And the key thing with cod, <laughs> if any of you actually care, is not to overcook it. Uh, you want to cook it, obviously, but the temptation is easy to just leave it in a bit too long. And so I did not do that. Uh, it just flaked apart on your fork. Um, it was it was terrific. I, I, I wish you could all have joined us for our dinner of cod. But uh, the real reason I'm telling you about this is... Uh, well, back to Adam Smith, and I want to talk about the economics of it. And um, the economics of it is that the cod were so overfished that they were being hauled out of the water faster than they could reproduce. You hear about it? It's a tragedy. And um, the um, cod didn't live long enough to get big, and so no longer did you find 200-pound cods. They were, they were fishing 30, 40, 50-pound cods. The big ones weren't around. Um, it, it was becoming a huge problem. Nations from all over the world were coming out to fish on the banks of Canada and northern United States, and they drove the cod I'm not going to say to extinction or close to extinction, but definitely seriously imperiling the future of the cod. Why, why did that happen? Why is it that, after all, people need wood, right? 
you know, we need paper, so there has to be trees and there got to be wood. How is it that our need for wood has not driven trees into extinction? As a matter of fact, there are now more trees in North America than there were 150 years ago. Many more trees. So we're not driving trees into extinction. Why is it that uh, human demand for corn is not driving corn into extinction, but the human demand for codfish was driving it into extinction? Answer? What's the answer? The answer is that trees in North America are owned by tree companies and they harvest them and sell them and they plant more and they're constantly planting more trees and constantly selling the trees. There's no shortage of wood in sight. How about corn? Corn is planted by farmers and grown and they plant as much as they think they'll be able to sell and uh, that's what they do. But the trouble is nobody owns the fish. And this, in economics, is what we call the tragedy of the commons. You know, I mentioned uh, Boston uh, a minute ago because the uh, cod statue, the cod carving is in the Massachusetts uh, government house in Boston. But in Boston, there's also something called the commons, Boston commons. And there used to be places like that in England as well, which is an open area of grass, often in the center of a village, that people could bring their cows and sheep to. And very soon, it was discovered what a real problem this was. Because when nobody owns it, it gets used without hesitation and without any restraint. In fact, everybody's attitude is, I'm going to get me some of mine while the going is good. And this brings us again to something else I speak about in my Bible teaching, which is that God does not like ownerless things. It's, it's not a good idea because things that are owned by everybody, and take note, um, all of you socialists who might have stumbled onto the show by accident, because uh, it isn't for you, uh, but socialists be aware that when everybody owns something, it actually means nobody owns it. And this is one of the reasons that when you walk into a post office, it's not nearly as clean and tidy as when you walk into a FedEx. Because when everybody owns something, nobody cares enough about it to look after it. And that is exactly what happened with the cod of... Uh, Massachusetts and Newfoundland, Canada and the United States, it got overfished because nobody said, hey, we, we need to go easy here. We got to give the cod a chance to reproduce. We can't catch cod quicker than they can make cod. And um, yeah, nobody said that. Everybody said, oh, we'd better go there and get some more cod while the going is good. And that's exactly what happens with things that are owned by everybody. God likes ownership. And I'm going to go further than that 
and say not only is it moral to own things, it is a good thing, it, it, it's a virtuous thing to have possessions. And uh, you might decide that you're going to let people come and fish on the piece of land you owe on the, sh- on the banks of a river, um, you know, maybe on uh, one weekend a month or whatever it is. But don't let anybody tell you that that land would be better off owned by everybody. It should be owned by society. It should be owned by the city or by the county or by the state. No, it's really, really better when things are owned by private individuals. How the, how's the COD problem going to be resolved? Well, one of the things that happened is that Canada imposed very necessary and very strict restrictions and regulations on cod fishing. But um, what should be done there? Um, I don't know the answer for sure, but if we are having a conversation, which which we are, because you can respond with your thoughts on the We Happy Warriors website, uh, where I participate in conversations with listeners of this show. Um I would say probably that um, I could see that it would make sense for uh, nations to extend their uh, ownership of the sea way out, way out. And again, powerful nations are going to be uh, more able to do this than smaller, weaker nations. But the idea is that if nations own their the, the fishing If, for instance, the United States could regulate how many Korean trawlers could uh, fish for cod off Massachusetts once they're outside the, uh, uh, the territorial limit, if they could extend that limit and regulate, then they would have a way of making sure that the cod fisheries were not overfished. Well, that's not fair for countries that don't have cod fisheries. It's the same, exactly the same, as countries that don't have gold mines, uh, countries that don't have cobalt or lithium mines, talking of uh, the need for batteries. Uh, What happens is you trade. Everybody has something. Think of Hong Kong. Think of Singapore. Think of Switzerland. Very little in the way of natural resources. Very little. And yet those countries, everyone living there lives very well because they all make good money. How? Because they do things and they make things. There is really no excuse for a poor nation. There really isn't. And the failure is not resources or weather. The failure is always culture. It's all it is. Some cultures work better than other cultures. A Judeo-Christian culture just works better for obvious reasons in my view, right? But that's important to understand. So your country doesn't have cod, but you like eating cod and you should. It's delicious when prepared <laughs> the way your rabbi prepared. I'm just, I'm just proud that I actually managed to do it in the first place. <laughs> um, Samuel Johnson, the English diarist, I'm pretty sure it was he... Uh, he was speaking about women preachers because uh, it was very, very rare. And he said that um, 
he said, a woman preacher, it's a little bit like a dancing dog. He said, it's so unusual and so difficult that you shouldn't really spend any time discussing about how well the dog dances. The fact that he dances at all is enough. He says it's like that with women preachers. Um, the It's hard to do. They, there are not many women doing it. The fact that they do it at all, he said, is, is amazing enough. Uh, as it happens, of course, time has passed, and I have heard some extraordinary women Christian preachers. Um, Gosh, uh, I, I could. I wonder. I, I could probably give names. I'll think about that. But uh, yes, I've heard a number of really excellent uh, women Christian pastors, and uh, they've done very well. But in my case, it's not so much that how well did I cook the cod, prepare the cod. The fact that I managed it all is rather remarkable. <laughs> I, I don't know much about it, but as it turned out, I uh, lucked across a good recipe, and it came out beautifully, absolutely splendidly. But um, if you're in a country that doesn't have cod fisheries, no problem, no problem. So produce something and use it to trade with countries that do have cod fisheries and import all your cod, right? Switzerland has no access to the sea. Funnily enough, it does. People joke about the Swiss Navy. Uh, there actually is such a thing. They have a few patrol boats on Lake Lugano. But um, uh, you can eat sushi in Switzerland. They got no contact with anywhere that tuna um, or, or uh, salmon can be caught. How do they do it? Because they trade. Trading is one of the big secrets of Judeo-Christian culture. And in order to trade, there has to be a sense of mutual trust. There has to be some kind of common system, some common cultural bond. And that is exactly why it is that countries that were founded on a Christian foundation did so well. The Hanseatic League cities that I told you about were all Christian cities, and so there was a basis of, on, of, of what a word means, which is not true for every religion. And that's one of the reasons that you don't find uh, marketplaces in Christian culture where people haggle and bargain and, and argue and yell and scream. But if you go to a Middle Eastern shuk, you know, anywhere from, gosh, from uh, the Mediterranean to, to Baghdad or further, uh, there, there are shooks in every town, a shook, a market. And, you know, the price is never the price. It's how much you can haggle and how much you can yell about and what you can, uh, what you can extract. It's a different way of doing business. So uh, for, for your own business affairs, try and establish relationships, friendships, connections, uh, with people with whom you share some outlook. Because if you can expand your base of connections and increasing numbers of people in that base of connections are people who share a religio-cultural outlook with you, you have the basis for trade. You'll find it really does work that way. One of the uh, things that uh, we Hebrews do, and it's, it's very common, 
um, is we we have almost in, in towns that have sizable or decent sized Jewish communities, they very often have a sort of yellow pages, you know, a uh, so that. Um, if you're looking for uh, whatever it is, a, a dealer or a, uh, a marketplace or or a, a craftsman or a tradesman, you're looking for somebody you need to buy something or to get a service done. Uh, one of the places you can start looking is right there. And there's a comfort level right off the bat. And you need to create your own circles like that or to become part of an existing circle like that. It's really important. Uh, just remember the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League did not form in Senegal and Bangladesh and Buenos Aires. No. The Hanseatic League established in countries where there was a common cultural foundation. They were not 100% alike, but there was enough to go on to establish uh, trustworthy and very profitable trading connections. And so this is something that is just valuable. Don't be isolated, please. No happy warrior uh, should ever say, you know, I'll do it by myself because we're not going to do anything by ourselves. Not much. We need collaboration. We need connection. We need communication. We need cooperation. And uh, those critical C's are really valuable. You expand, you know, maybe it's through your church. Maybe it's through other groups that are around. But you find people with whom you have a cultural bond. And when I say cultural bond, that nearly always means religious. That's why I sometimes say religio-cultural bond. And uh, you'll be amazed how, how much business comes your way, how many opportunities you have to trade with people that become part of this circle of cultural trust. Think about it. That's that's a very, very important, doable, practical piece of advice. I'm, I'm taking it for granted that you already are at a point where you know what services or goods you provide, how you serve your fellow human beings. If you've established that, then all you need now are more people to serve and um, making sure that you have a growing circle of people that fit into your worldview of trust, fantastic. You'll find it to be incredibly wonderful. And so, my dear happy warriors, don't forget to take a look on the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. You want to take um, a look for scrolling through Scripture. There's two units, Unit 1 and Unit 2. You need to focus on Unit 1, Scrolling Through Scripture Unit 1, and use the coupon code for a fabulous discount. Um, write it down now. You'll have it STS1FEB2023. STS, the number one, FEB, F-E-B, 2023, and you will be happy that you did. Well, we started with fish, the beautiful cod, and... Um, and so we'll end with another fish. And 
And this one is a less happy story. This is a fish that is a delicacy in the People's Republic of China. It's called yin yang fish. That's right, yin yang fish. And uh, I don't know if yin yang is a translation or whether another name for this dish is called dead and alive fish. Um, this is sickeningly cruel and horrible. Uh, it's an oil-fried whole fish um, whose head is kept alive even after his body has been cooked. So uh, it's disgusting. You can see pictures of it where the, the fish eyes and mouth are moving and you see it on a plate in a restaurant and the whole body has been deep fried and they keep it alive so that it's served while it's still alive. Um, this is something that is very explicitly uh, prohibited in Judeo-Christian culture. In other words, eating meat from a non-dead creature, you know, like yanking off the leg of a creature and eating it, is uh, cruel and barbaric. We're not allowed to do that. And this is cruel and barbaric. Why do I mention it? Because I speak about China a great deal, for very good reason, I think. Um, I... Gosh, we, I, I've spoken about it in some podcasts, but I'll be doing more, and it's it's in our new book, which isn't out yet, <clears throat> and that is the extent to which our diet shapes us, the extent to which how we eat and what we eat does impact our spiritual reality, and obviously, our spiritual reality ultimately shapes everything else. Um, I am going to say that uh, in spite of all the things that China is triumphing on, all the things that China is achieving, uh, at the same time, I have to tell you that a people whose eating can be this callous and this cruel is a people that, uh, that have a, an intrinsic spiritual break on their progress. In other words, as well as you're doing, let's say you're, you're a runner and uh, you uh, have somebody strap a 25-pound weight belt from scuba diving around your waist before you set off on a marathon, um, you're going to be slowed down. In the same way, a culture that is in a race, a culture that is trying to progress and achieve and accomplish, that eats in a uh, very cruel way, has put on a weight belt. It has a handicap. So um, it'll be interesting to watch and see this, but uh, this is not the only example of uh, cruel aspects of a Chinese diet. Um, I don't know how widespread these things are in China, whether I, I have no idea, but I do know that this Chinese dish is uh, considered a delicacy in uh, mainland China, less so in Taiwan, I believe, but um, yes, in mainland China. Yin-yang fish, I, I believe it is a handicap on the progress of the Chinese people and their country that has made such remarkable and historic progress in the last 50 years. So, um, Yes, we are what we eat. There's no question about it. And uh, 
uh, eating in a certain way and eating certain things and saying a blessing before or after or both when you eat. These are all things. I mean, look at us. Everything that we are comes through our mouths. <laughs> so how can you not pay attention to that? At any rate, that, my dear happy warriors, is indeed as far as we will go for today. And so I can do no more at this point than to wish you a week of exciting progress in your faith and your family, your finances, your friendships, and your fitness. Till next program, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.